So here's a story that might not have ever happened, but should have. (laughs) A busy, time-pressured corporate executive, impressed with himself and not much with anyone else, was stranded at the Atlanta airport. He'd missed his connecting flight, and if he couldn't find another one quickly, he was going to miss a crucial meeting, so he shoved his way to the front of the ticket counter line and demanded a first-class ticket on the next available flight. The agent behind the counter politely told him that He'd be glad to help him, but he was going to have to wait in line like everyone else. And this man growled, young man, do you know who I am? And the agent slowly turned and picked up a microphone. Attention, attention please, there's a gentleman at the ticket counter who doesn't know who he is. If anyone can identify him, please come to help him. Thank you. It can happen to us, you know, blinded by self-importance or anger or forgetfulness or just by the blur of a very busy life. Far too many of us lose track of who we are. And in the absence of our knowing who we are, there are plenty of people who are anxious to tell us. Because one of the truths is that whoever defines us controls us. Carl Sandburg wrote an extensive and eloquent six-volume biography of Abraham Lincoln. And when the last book, The War Years, came out, a reporter asked Sandburg what he intended to do next. And Sandberg said, after giving so much time to Abraham Lincoln, I must find out now who the man Carl Sandberg is. Sandberg had to know who Sandberg was, and for us to live deeply and well, to know peace and joy, we also have to know who we are. So getting clear about what we think, feel, and value, about what our non-negotiable convictions are, is one of life's most important tasks. And this story about Jesus' temptations urges us not to allow anyone except the God who loves us to tell us who we are. Because if we allow others to do so, we will never know the fullest, truest, deepest truth about ourselves. Notice how these temptations are linked by Luke with his baptism. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, Returned from the Jordan, Luke wants us to link these two experiences, the experience of baptism and the experience of temptation. In other words, the experience of identity and the experience of struggle over identity. At the Jordan, when he was baptized by his cousin John, 
Jesus knew the peace of doing what was right in God's eyes. He saw and felt the powerful tenderness of the Holy Spirit settle on him like a dove. And he heard God's voice tell him who he was. You are my son, the beloved. You're my son, the beloved. With you I'm well pleased. And in Jesus we too come to know that we are sons and daughters whom God loves and in whom God takes great delight. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by that same Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Imagine this whip-lashing journey Jesus made, this disorienting pilgrimage from the river to the wilderness from blessing to struggle. And what happened essentially in the wilderness is that the identity confirmed at baptism is now called into question by the evil one. Notice, too, how the first and the final temptations begin with the insidious suggestion that it might not have been true what he heard in the water. If, if, if you are the Son of God. What if his experience in the Jordan had been nothing more than an emotional outburst caused by the powerful preaching of his cousin John? What if the dove he saw descend on him and the voice he heard were hallucinations. And even if he were God's son, even if he was God's son, what did that mean anyway? What power did it give him? How should he use whatever power it gave him? What responsibilities does son of God have in the world? How would he meet them? What would it cost? After a 40-day fast, hunger was gnawing at his gut. The evil one came to Jesus and said, If you are the Son of God, then command the stone, this stone, to become a loaf of bread. Now, as you know, when the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, God provided manna for them. And later in Luke's Gospel, Jesus will multiply bread to feed a hungry crowd. So if God feeds the children of Israel in the wilderness, and if Jesus feeds the hungry crowd in the desert, why wouldn't it be okay for him to use his power to make a little supper for himself? Why, why shouldn't he conjure up a little bread? Because... The Son of God would never use his power to serve himself in isolation from everyone else. There's not a single sentence in the New Testament that I can find anyway, not a single instance which suggests that Jesus used his power to make his own life easier, his own life better. He saw that the power he had 
was for the freeing and the healing of others. And besides, Jesus had learned from Deuteronomy that bread is necessary but not sufficient. One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds, notice the present tense, proceeds, comes every day from the mouth of God. The second temptation likewise struck at Jesus' identity, at his, at his understanding of how God's Son would function in the world. The devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and said to him, To you I will give all these things and all their glory and authority if you will worship me. It will all be yours. And here was the lure of glittering power and stunning success, all without any struggle at all. All he had to do was cut a deal with the world's biggest power broker. I'll give you control of the world if you give me control of you. I won't oppose you. I won't get in your way. I'll make it easy for you. Why, why risk the idea that you might have to struggle? And Jesus said, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only Him. And then that third temptation again threatened Jesus' sense of self. If you're the Son of God, Throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. And, and since Jesus had rebuffed the evil one by quoting from Deuteronomy, the, the devil shows that he too is a theologian and can quote from the Bible. So he quotes from the Psalms. It is written, God will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on his hand, their hands, they will bear you up so that you won't even dash your foot against the stone. Do something spectacular, Jesus. So spectacular that it will prove, it will force God to prove how much God loves you. Back God into a corner. Make it where God has to act. Pull a Superman stunt. After all, shouldn't God's son be able to count on a little special protection? When I was early in ministry, one of my uh, teachers, a, a mentor of mine, said a preacher who goes into the pulpit unprepared is like someone throwing himself down from the pinnacle of the temple and hoping that God will save him before the service is over. I tried not to tempt God like that, but I came close sometimes. It's like, you know, not studying for your math test, but praying you'll make an A anyway. It's like gambling with your health and hoping you never get ill. Presuming that, that you can make God act. For the third time, Jesus rejected the adversary's ploy. It is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, 
These temptations are Jesus-level, son-of-God-sized temptations. They are beyond our capacity, but they match his strengths and gifts, his potential and possibilities. But in another way, these are our temptations too. Because like Jesus, we're tempted to forfeit our identity as God's children in favor of an identity that someone wants to impose on us or an identity we think will get us further along in the world. We're tempted to use our abilities selfishly to go for short-term comfort rather than long-term character, to make the way easier instead of better, to trim our commitments in order to get ahead, climb the ladder, and polish our reputation, to live on the edge of danger but still count on God's protection, and to live in reckless disregard for our responsibilities but still expect rescue In the wilderness seasons of our lives, we face the choice, and it's a hard choice, about whether to stay true to our God-given identity or to forfeit it for something that seems in the moment easier, more comfortable, more popular. You may know that at the end of World War I, The French army found itself in a very difficult situation. Over 100,000 gendarmes were suffering from amnesia because of shell shock. And there was a faulty record system, so not even the army knew who all their soldiers were. In every other way, many of these soldiers were healthy, but they couldn't remember their identity. They couldn't remember their names. Sometimes they couldn't even remember where they were from. And so the French government did what they, the only thing they could think to do. And that is they, they held uh, essentially rallies in the center of little French towns and major French cities where people would come to the town square And one after one, soldiers would climb up on a platform and say, please, is there anyone out there who can tell me who I am? Well, God can tell us. And what God tells us is the truth about ourselves. God can help us to remember who we really are. And memory, I think memory is our shelter from temptation. Uh, Frederick Buechner wrote, maybe you've heard this before, Frederick Buechner wrote, some years ago I had a dream A dream that remains, he said, extraordinarily fresh in my mind. I dreamt I was staying in a hotel somewhere. 
and that the room I was given was a room that I loved. It wasn't so much the way the room looked that pleased me as it was the way the room felt. It was a room where I felt happy and at peace, where everything seemed the way it should be and everything about myself seemed the way it should be too. Then as the dream went on, I wandered off to other places and did other things and finally after many adventures, it ended up back at the same hotel again. Only this time, I was given a different room and I didn't feel comfortable in it at all. It seemed dark and cramped and I felt dark and cramped in it. So I made my way down to the man at the desk and told him my problem. I said on an earlier visit, I'd had this marvelous room which was just right for me in every way and which, if possible, I'd like very much to have again. The trouble, I explained, was that I hadn't kept track of where the room was. And I didn't know how to find it or how to ask for it. The clerk was very understanding. He said he knew exactly which room I meant and that I could have it any time I wanted it. All I had to do, he said, was ask for it by name. So then, I, of course, I asked him what the name of the room was. He said he'd be happy to tell me, and then he told me, the name of the room is Remember. Remember, he said, the name of the room I wanted was Remember. That's the room we want. The room where no matter what else happens, we recall, we reaffirm, we renew who we are. The room is called remember. So remember, friends. Sift through your experiences and take note of those times when God forgave you, when your guilt was overwhelming, when God welcomed you though your shame was crippling, when God brought you hope even though you saw no way from where you were to a future worth living, when God steeled you with courage in the face of what you were sure you couldn't possibly handle, when God caused you to hear a song that carried you, to read a book that changed you. Remember when God brought you a friend who was as radiant as any of God's angels. Remember what God said about you and what God says daily, every day. It's what you heard in Jesus at baptism. You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. I take great delight in you. And friends, if we hear that voice, if we hear that voice beneath and above all the other voices, we can, we can withstand the temptation to forfeit who we are. We can remember we can remember. Amen.